The Foundation for Ancient Research and Mormon Studies presents the Pearl of Great Price Lecture Series, given by Dr. Hugh Nibley. Today's lecture is entitled, Restoring What Was Lost. The gospel is not religion as it's commonly understood. It's an interesting thing that in all modern European languages, they all use the same word for religion, whether it's in Russian or Spanish or Dutch or English. You don't use the native language. There is no native word. Everybody says just religion. It's all religio, religion. And why is that? Why don't they appeal to the roots of their native language, their native idiom, uh, to tell what they want? Because that would force them to define what they were t thinking about. And if we just use this common word religion, it's, it's a great help. It's a safe word. There's no agreement on the source at all. It's been very much studied. Of course, it has. The ancients argued about where it came from. The, uh, the moderns do, and they still don't agree what the source is. There are two main pieces. Well, the roots are very clear. It's simply from Ray. Well, some say they're the two, religio, religio. Religio. Well, but the, it's generally agreed today that the word is religio. Ara, which is strange. Religo, that's what it's regular form. That it should be religara, it should be a pen and E. That uh, this is short, religo. Um, what it means, of course, ligo ligera is to bind ligaments and uh, ligation and this sort of thing, anything you bind together. And religo means to bind back, to bind back to something, to tie together with something else, and nobody knows what it is we're supposed to tie back to. I mean, St. Augustine, they all had their, their theories about it. And uh, the one except today is that it, it goes back. Some say, well, it always ties up with another world or with heaven or religio. It, it ties you up with something beyond this world. You get out of this world, and so it puts it in a department by itself. See, whether in any subject at all, uh, you must deal with a thing that you can deal with, that you see, you hear, you handle, talk about, and so forth. When you talk about religion, you brought in an element that you're not allowed to bring in in any other subject. And yet, this is the most important thing there is. And so, we borrow this safe word that comes from the Romans, religion, that we, which we leave undefined. Uh, the Roman religion was a state religion of forms and observances, Book of Mormon says. It was relieved by unmitigated superstition. That's a very interesting thing, you see. Uh, they were superstition, but how religious were they? It's a very interesting thing, going through hundreds and hundreds of the effects of, of the pockets of, of German soldiers, of prisoners of war taken on the battlefield. That's when they, you can, of course, they're, they're most accessible. They'll tell you anything they want. But it's important to have them turn their pockets out and uh, show what they have and so forth. They were just loaded with charms and uh, rabbit's feet and all sorts of superstitious trinkets and so forth. Very superstitious. And about one in two or three hundred, you find a Bible. In World War I, they tell me every soldier had a Bible. It was routine. Everybody had a Bible. No. They didn't have a Bible. They didn't believe in anything particular. But were they superstitious? Did they cling to their rabbit's foot? It's a surprising thing. You see, two aren't the same. That comes nearer to religion as we understand it there. Uh, <coughs> but the Romans would accept anything under the name of religion without arguing. Doibner says in his work on uh, Ludwig Doibner, in his work on Roman religion in, in Chantepi, uh, he says it's true to say that there is a, not another civilization of the ancient world whose religion is not somewhere other involved in the Roman religion. 
in the religious life of the Romans. They borrowed anything they could. They just pick it up. They didn't take it too seriously. If it was nice, they used it and so forth. They had everything. Uh, in Apuleius and Petronius, writings like that, they remind you so much of rock stars. Those stories are about uh, uh, the typical novella in the, uh, the Roman novella at the, in the time of Augustus in the Golden, then in the Silver Age, was about wandering tramps. Most novels are wandering stories. But they were typical rock stars. They would wear these outlay, out, uh, outrageous outfits and so forth. And they were very superstitious. They were always, uh, it was always a matter of horoscopes and stars and charms. Everything that happened, they interpreted as having some superstitious connection that had to do with them and so forth. But their dress, their action, their morals were exactly like that particular uh, element today, the, uh, the MTV people. But there, you read something, as I say, as in Asculapius, or better still in Petronius, a marvelous work, or any of the five satirists, and uh, <coughs> you see that they, uh, that's, that's the level of their religion. They're quite pious, really, and uh, like some of their songs are quite pious. And so the, uh, that's the nice thing about it. Anything goes. Horace jokes genially about it, you know. Horace, the greatest of their of the satirists. He says, come over. Everybody's talking religion, he says, uh, in his famous ode called Nil Admirari. Don't let anything get excited. Don't worry about anything, the next world or anything like that. And he starts out Nil Admirari, not to get worried or upset. That's, that's my religion. That's about all you can worry about. And if you come over and visit me, come over, we'll have a nice time chatting, and you will find me a porcum et a greg epicuri. You will find that I'm just a pig from the sty of Epicurus. Epicurus, just enjoy yourself. There's nothing else to do. I mean, if you die, there's nothing you can do about it. It's going to be here after all. So good. You'd be that much ahead. But uh, that was the philosophy of Epicurus, you know, and they were Epicureans. And so Horace says, good naturedly come over. And otherwise, he says, if you don't believe, and then he spoofs, he says, uh, in another ode, he says, uh, one place he says, credat judeus apelles. He tells about a, a story, a miracle story, and he says, let the Jew apelles believe that, because the Jews were, were uh, this was the time of Christ, this was the time of Augustus, you see, this was just before, this was the very time Christ was born, and uh, nobody believed anything, and anybody who believed anything was a Jew, so credat Judeus Apelles, let the Jew Apelles believe that, and the reason he uses Apelles, Apelles was a famous actor, everybody was wild about Apelles because he was a clever actor, the people at that time, see, I already start wandering from the subject, we'll get back to it, the people at that time were obsessed by theatromania, the theater mania, which they are a spectator. Everything was for spectator sports. And we'd, it's TV today. But they were just as obsessed as we are today. And it's a, it's a sign of ultimate decline and fall is theatromania. All those notes I've collected on theatromania and never used them. I'm going to use them sometime. Theater mania. Uh, theatron, thea, theao, theory, of course, means to look at to watch, to show. Of course, we're all watchers, we're all viewers today. Very few participants in sport or anything else, thanks to TV. But they went over just, they had the techniques for it too. It wasn't TV, you may have known, but they had their, their setups for that. But there's, uh, as Ludwig Wissowa, which is the standard work, the great work on 19th century work on, no, 20th century, on uh, Roman religion says, it's all public. The, everything is public, and it's all cult, and it's what everybody did, and everybody went along with. There was plenty of reverence and so forth. As I say this religura, it binds you to something, but as Lucretius, a Latin, say this is going to turn out to be a Latin class after all, isn't it? 
There's a famous work of Lucretius de Rerum Natura on the real nature of things, he says. If you get to know how things really are, you'll give up religion and all its, all its foolishness. The expression he uses is religiomum nosis animos exalvera. Uh, religionum nobis animi. His purpose of his writing, he says, is to liberate the, uh, an the spirits, liberate the spirits of men animus from the bonds or ties, the notice, but it's a knot in which you're tied. It's the same word as this one, religio, see? Uh, religio is really a knot that ties people up. They can't be free, they can't think freely, therefore, by giving you a scientific picture of the world, I will liberate you, as he, he puts it, religio notice animus ex solvera. I'll dissolve, I'll, I'll untie the knots and so forth. Well, suffice it to say that we've gone one way and the world the other. We're not taking that, that division, uh, idea of religion at all. Uh, well, uh, so what we begin with, I think I collect this one theme. They have taken many precious things away from the scriptures from the record. And it, we have one book that restores them, and only one. It's not the Book of Mormon, it's not Doctrine and Covenants, it's Pearl of Great Price. Restores the many precious things that are taken away that lead people to stumble. I collected a number of relevant passages years ago, and so to save trouble, I'm just, there are just a couple of short ones here, all from the Book of Mormon. And uh, this book that thou beholdest is a record, this is 1 Nephi 12 and 23. The book that thou beholdest is a record, he has this, he sees it in a vision, he sees the book. And it, he says it's very close to the Old Testament that we have now, but uh, they've taken away a lot of it, there's not much left. The book that thou beholdest is a record of the Jews which contains the covenants of the Lord, which he hath made unto the house of Israel. And also many of the prophecies of the holy prophets. So they had a, a good edition of the Old Testament. This is our Old Testament. It is a record, he goes on here, like unto the engravings which are upon the plates of brass. Remember the bronze plates that were brought down? That was the record that, uh, that, uh, Laban ha that, uh, that Lehi had. And he says that's about the same thing. He saw that later the Gentiles would have the Bible, the Old Testament, very much like the bronze plates that his father had. Except there are not so many. Aha, we don't have as many as even as he had, and lots of people came after him, you see. His friend was Jeremiah, and there was a lot written after him that wasn't, that we don't, uh, wasn't recorded in the Book of Mormon. Well, nevertheless, they contain the covenants of the Lord unto the house of Israel. Therefore, they are of great worth unto the Gentiles, as well as the Jews. They're of great worth to everybody. And then, Professor Albright, who's talked here, who has an honorary degree from here, the most distinguished biblical scholar America ever produced, uh, William Foxwell Albright, i never forget what he said as he came from the airport, my, it feels good to get away from those anemic Protestants, he said. <laughs> <laughs> well, a Pearl of Great Price is not anemic. It, it carries a wallop. Uh, as Professor Albright puts it, our Hebrew texts have suffered more from losses than from glosses. Glosses changes by corrections by scribes and so forth, alterations, notations. That isn't what's damaged the Bible. It's losses, the stuff that's been removed. That's where it really suffers. And he proceeds to illustrate the point from a number of books, showing, he says, quote, Future translations will have to expand the text substantially, including some passages of great importance in their content that are missing from the Bible because they've been removed now. Of course, they're being restored now. And this is our original proposition in the Book of Mormon. They have taken away, says Nephi, many parts that were most precious. And these are to be restored by bringing forth other books and records, he says. Well, do we have them? They have taken away from the Gospel of the Lamb many parts, the New Testament, you see, many parts which are plain and precious, and also many covenants of the Lord have they taken away. This is all from the 13th chapter. And uh, it is the great and abominable church, but remember, 
they were all taken away before the Catholic Roman Catholic Church appeared at all. It wasn't it, by the great and abominable church. He tells us in First Nephi 22:13 that designates any who fight against Israel. It doesn't pinpoint any particular church here. Any who fight against Israel are the great abominable. He tells us. But here, after these plain and precious things had been taken away, it go forth under all the nations of the Gentiles. The records didn't go forth from Palestine until after they'd been pretty well they'd been plundered and the objectionable, par objectionable parts removed. Now, and this is the result of it. Next verse. Because of these things which are taken away out of the gospel of the Lamb, an exceeding great many do stumble. That's what happens, of course. We walk, we're able to get along, but we stumble. We don't agree on what we read. We can't get over passages and so forth. And uh, because of this disagreement, it shows that we're not, we're not walking in a straight and simple path. In the, in the plain path, as the scripture says, uh, in, in the plain way, and uh, which incidentally is a good Egyptian expression, have agreed today the whole scholarly world is by its own admission stumbling around in the dark. I'm quoting from C.H. Dodd, who has also visited here. He says, a new integrating pattern is what we need. He wonders what can possibly be the point of the entire corpus. It, we've lost everything is what he's telling us here in editing that big book on the uh, New Testament. And the Lord tells us, Nephi tells us again here, that certain things he was not allowed to write down because he said they would be written by, down by John, and these things will come forth in the due time of the Lord, sealed up to come forth in their purity in the own due time of the Lord unto the house of Israel. Well, has that time come? Yes, it has. We have a lot given us from the very first. That's in the 14th chapter of Nephi. So we have here these books of restoration, the uh, most important restorative book, most important restoration of books has been, to date, has been the Pearl of Great Price because it contains nothing but manuscripts. First handwritings purportedly, original, just excerpts, brief excerpts, uh, adequate for their purpose, and some of them not so, pre so brief, but excerpts from the writings of people of the founders of the great dispensations of the past. From eight different, eight different writers have contributed what purport to be their, their original writings. Now, in 1830, nobody could test anything like that. But this is what makes it so significant about the Pearl of Great Price now. Now, the Book of Mormon doesn't, report, uh, doesn't restore lost parts of the Bible. It contains passages not handed down in our Bible that they had from their bronze plates and so forth. You find them quoted by Abinadi and Helaman and Third Nephi, and they've come up in documents that have been found since the Book of Mormon came forth. But its purpose was not to restore these lost passages of the Bible. They come in incidentally when Abinadi quotes uh, the Book of Enoch uh, and Helaman and Third Nephi quotes some marvelous passages. And it was written all after the Old Testament. Remember, uh, Malachi was the only book that had to be added. The Old Testament had already been completed then. So the Book of Mormon's not going to give us anything new there. And the great doctrinal teachings such as those of Alma, Alma, Nephi, Ammon, uh, all through, of course, Moroni, Mormon, the great doctrinal teachings are all direct revelations. They're not restored from old books. That's, we're not talking about that particular theme now. These are direct revelations we have coming down. And the Jaredite story, that's very interesting because that deals with the scattering. That's one of the most interesting books we have. Uh, notice I use the word scattering, not the dispersion. That's used of the other dispersions of Israel when it was scattered. That's the scattering of the people after, at the fall of the tower, the Tower of Babel, supposedly, when they, when they were scattered, the nations were scattered at that early time, uh, after the flood. 
That's a very important period, this uh, scattering. I say it's not a diaspora. It's not the spreading or spreading abroad uh, of Israel. It is the, they call it the scattering, the best word to use. That it distinguishes that particular period. Now, the interesting thing is, incidentally, that there is no literature from the scattering. They don't, don't have any Jewish or Christian literature from that at all. The only book we have of the scattering is our book of Ether in the Book of Mormon. That's, a, that's from the scattering. And... Uh, but another interesting thing, we don't have from any holy sources books on the scattering, yet it is the most richly documented of all subjects in the other literature, in the, in the uh, secular literature of the, uh, the Babylonians and the Greeks, uh, and the, uh, especially contemporary literature, I mean the old stuff, Egyptian Babylonian, there you really get into it. They talk about it in detail, they talk about the wanderings and the scatterings all over the place. Of course, the f 14th chapter of Genesis. Uh, but that's, that's before the Tower of Babel. This is the big scattering we're talking about. So again, the Book of Mormon is unique there, but uh, this is not what we're talking about. It doesn't restore what was, not in the, what was lost from the Bible because that story never was told in the Bible. That's, that's one by itself. It's peculiar. Likewise, the Doctrine and Covenants is for the modern church, and it is the Pearl of Great Price, I might say the Pearl of Great Price alone, to date, to date, that because in your own time, Section has been added to the Pearl of Great Price from the vision of Joseph F. Smith. Um, precious parts that were removed from the scriptures, these parts are restored in the Pearl of Great Price. Now, how do you know that anything has been taken out of the Bible? Well, the Genesis are a good example of that. We used to say a lot about Genesis in, well, in Book of Mormon courses, especially Genesis. You know what a magazine is? Magazine. Uh, it's not a gazina, machza is machzine, uh, the Arabic word for a barn or storage place. Machza from the root to store. We put things in a magazine and so forth. It's the same root and so forth. But a geniza is a peculiar institution, a Jewish institution. You're not supposed to destroy a text of the, of the Old Testament, uh, the Holy Writings. When you've read it, uh, you can't, if it's a used up copy, see, there were the copies used in the synagogues. And when they were used up and worn out, they had to be replaced. And they could never, you could never, with very strict rule, never write a word from memory. You had to copy down exactly as it was there. The person had to copy word for word. So it, it was actually the continuation of the same manuscript. There had been no loss, whatever. And, uh, but what would you do with the old manuscript? It couldn't be burned. Uh, it couldn't be thrown away. It couldn't be cut up. So what you did, you made a geniza. That was a hole in the wall of the, and there are many of these, of the... Uh, synagogue in the mud or brick or stone and you put the old text in there and you covered it up and uh, in the uh, the beginning of this century Paul Kala and others started looking for Genesis uh, in the, the Damascus fragment was discovered uh, which belongs to the Dead Sea Scrolls which indicated that these things were there and they started tapping the walls around old monasteries in old synagogues in Cairo, Cairo was a very important one because that produced a valuable Geniza, and in Romania and all the places where there'd been old synagogues, and there's some very old ones all scattered all over the place. Many had been converted to mosques, you see, but the walls were still intact, the walls were still there. And so by hearing the hollow sound, you could come out with a text that was a thousand or two thousand years older than any text that had been known. Then you could see whether what had been changed, if they'd altered anything or changed anything. So the Cairo Geniza is, is perhaps the most valuable serves the same purpose as the Dead Sea Scrolls. Here was a blank, they were, they were uh, salted away in caves. And what happened there? Here, 
Here you have the cave number four, which is the most interesting. You go, go in there. They, um, first, they made careful copies on new clean sheets of papyrus. Uh, papyrus. Sometimes, yes. Usually it was, though it was parchment. And uh, then you roll them up carefully and you put them in a linen bag and you seal it, hide the bag up. You cover the bag with pitch, just as if you were giving a funeral as somebody who's being buried. And you cover, incidentally, the ascension of Moses uh, confirms this. And you cover it with pitch, and then you put the, it into a jar, a specially made jar. You've seen pictures of these Dead Sea Scrolls jars like that. With a lid that seals hermetically, you put lead or pitch around the top and seal it hermetically. You put it in there. Then you line up these jars at the back of a dry cave where there's never, in the Judean desert where it never rains, it's dry as, as Death Valley. And uh, then you cover it with dry sand up there. Now, that's going to be preserved until a later time, as the texts tell us themselves, until the due time of the Lord, when these things shall come forth, shall come forth again. Now, it was thought formerly that uh, they never did anything like this. Uh, uh, the, uh, I remember I used to teach for four years at uh, Scripps College before the wall, and uh, I shared a class, the, the junior humanities, with uh, good speed. Edwin Goodspeed, who'd retired from the University of Chicago, and he'd come out there to teach in California where it was nice. And uh, so we shared this junior humanities class. He'd have one day a week and I'd have the next. And uh, he insisted at that time, he insisted there, the, the New Testament, nothing was written in it before the fourth century. The New Testament was not an ancient book at all. It didn't go back to the apostles in the time of Christ because they didn't have writing. The Jews didn't write in the time of Christ. There was no writing then. There were, people didn't do that sort of thing. It was a rare activity. And, and then he died, and a month later, they started discovering the Dead Sea Scrolls, of which thousands and thousands, 10,000 different documents have been found, all written by Jews at the time of Christ in a very flowing, free hand, scriptures, all sorts of things. There are uh, tremendous treasures came out all of a sudden. They didn't think it was so. All of a sudden, there it was. And so here, we know that things have been taken out of the Bible now. It's a remarkable thing. The first one, the very first discovered, was a text of Isaiah, which, of course, was the most important. They thought more of that just as we do. It's the number one Old Testament prophet. And text, anyway, has more to do with the restoration of the gospel and like. And this text was complete in perfect condition. We still have it. I have photographic copies of it. The interesting thing is that it, at 3,000 places, it reads differently from the text, the, Jew, the, the Masoretic text, the Hebrew text we have now. 3,000 places, it reads differently. Nonetheless, nothing really basic has been changed. It was handed on with remarkable, uh, with remarkable faithfulness and veracity, and it's a, it's a correct and reliable document. A uh, thousand years, two thousand years gap didn't spoil it at all. Until then, until 1950s, that well, was about 1950, 51. Uh, the oldest text we had of the Old Testament uh, was the uh, um, was the ninth century text. It, it was the, the, the ninth century. Oh, Rabbi, what's his name? Text. But we didn't have anything older than the ninth century A.D. And here was a text a thousand years older than any other text of the Bible to tell us what had been lost and what had been changed. Now, remember, hundreds of those, over 300 caves have been found with documents in them all over the place. Nobody knows. Imagine, just before then, nobody knew there was anything at all there. And uh, it's an amazing thing. But this answers the question, how do we know things have been taken out? You can find out there. How do you know they were precious? Now, Catholics and Protestants insist that anything really important was never lost. Of course, they have to insist that, because if something, insist on that, because if something really was lost, uh, 
they'd be in an awkward situation. They don't believe in revelation, and uh, a serious loss would mean our, our present-day teachings are, uh, are to be called into question. How do they know their interpretations are correct and so forth? The Jesuit formula is that one from the housetops. What you preach, preach from the housetops. And they say, see, the Lord told the disciples to preach from the housetops. And no secrets, nothing held behind. And yet when he met with them behind closed doors, he says, to you it is given to understand the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. Therefore I speak to them in parables. It's not given. Well, I have collected and written extensively on that subject of the reticence of the apostles, the teachings that were held back, and they were always the most important ones. Of course, the most important, the most exalted ones, as the Lord says, you do not cast your pearls before swine or your dessert to the dogs, which was not a term of contempt for the animals at all, but the, the pigs wouldn't have any particular use for pearls, and it'd only make if you gave your dessert to the dogs, and he uses the word canarion, a word of affection, your pet puppy, a little puppy dog, you don't feed him all the dessert, it'll make him sick. It's not for him, he can't digest it. So these things are held back. Well, that's very clear here, and now you can tell. These documents that come out show us that a great deal was not divulged by the apostles, because whenever you find a document, whenever you find an important text, uh, remember, the same time the, the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, 1948, the same time the Nag Hammadi texts were discovered. You see the Dead Sea Scrolls has come around, we won't refer to these very much, but these are very important because they happened in our own time and uh, come around where, where they found them. And the other is Nag Hammadi, the blessed female camel. This is a, uh, on the middle, on the middle uh, Nile, several years ago, two of our men, uh, Kent Brown and uh, Wilford Griggs, went back and dug a couple of seasons in the Nag Hammadi site. They don't really know where they were found. They, they, they turn up in the market to see if peasants found them, and they've been burning these documents to heat their huts for untold years. Uh, really, they've been warming their house by these. They'd found them. Found in much the same conditions as the Dead Sea Scrolls, buried in the same way, except though they were very old, just as old, they go back way back to first, second century. They were in book form, real books with leather bindings and all the rest of it going way back. That's something. They, they were codices. And uh, they just found one new codex, uh, not a very big one. It's supposed to be a James. Well, there are other Jameses in there, writings of James, going way back to the time of Christ. And, and I hear it's up for sale for $3 million. If you want to go over to the bookstore, they'll give you a rebate. <laughs> That'd be a slight reduction, uh, 10%. But see, these things are still coming up. But it's, they were not from the house to all from the housetops. They, these things were precious, and they were held back. And the more precious, the more they were held back, because you're not to, to kick these things around. They're not to be made known to everybody. That's why we keep the temples closed to the general public. Not that people can't find out if they make an, any effort at all what goes on, but that isn't the point at all. The point is that you keep your own private integrity, and, uh, and these things are not to be made what the Jews called halal. There's a lot in the Old Testament about that. You must not make these things halal. It means vulgar for regular discussion and so forth, because what does it do? Well, it distorts the... Everybody starts arguing about it, they give their own interpretations, the things become distorted, and, and they become treated as, as uh, trivia. Uh, subject for popular conversation, or movies, or anything else. And that's what halal means. It means uh, defiled by, by public use and regular use. It just, it's lost its, its sacred nature. Well, how highly valued were they in that case? The answer, they via they were valued highly enough that people fought furiously 
to defend them from being removed from the scriptures. That was a tremendous fight about that. Uh, fight against whom? Who, who wanted to remove them? Well, the swarming sectary teachers in the second century, everybody claimed that he had the only teaching was given to the apostles. This is what the Gnostics did, you see. Uh, secretly, after, after the resurrection, the Lord gave... After the resurrection, the Lord came and, and taught the apostles. And, and uh, Eusebius tells us, quoting Hegesippus, a very early historian right then, he says that as soon as the last eyewitness had died to the old church, then, he says, all these people who had been laying low, lying low, my gosh, what's happened to me? Laying low, lying low. What were they laying low? I guess they were laying their books low, I don't know. Uh, but lying low came out of the woodwork, he says. Everyone claiming that he had the original teaching, the secret teaching that had been passed by. He was the one who had it, and this is what the Gnostics were, <laughs> claiming these, uh, these sects, these, uh, the secret knowledge, the secret teaching, which Gnosticism is. But everybody had his own version. Everybody claimed to be the only one. The same thing happens later in, in Freemasonry. But uh, they didn't want these things. Why did they want them on? Why did they want them to be done away with, the, the pretenders? See, and there were no winners in this fight. The winner was, of course, the one who came out, was taken over by the schools the, the, uh, that had the big backing, the big money, and so forth. Well, why did they want it to be done away with, these, uh, these rascals? And some of them were pretty good people, pretty smart people, very serious and conscientious, because they were afraid of them. And why were they afraid of them? Because they deal with the terrible questions. And I say a good deal about the terrible questions here. Why the terrible questions? Because they were fundamental and they had no answers to them. Why didn't they have any answers? Because they had no revelation. Why no revelation? Well, let's go back to our, our first Nephi, the passage we started out with. Well, oh, Moroni's good on that. But uh, yes, let's look at the last book in the Book of Mormon. It tells us why they were having no more. And they don't think they didn't miss it. They just were wild. They did anything they could to get revelation. They used drugs and uh, hypnosis and everything else. There's good accounts of that in, in Irenaeus and Epiphanius and so on, what they were doing to keep things going. But uh, right at the end here, in the where he says, I would exhort you, my beloved member, remember, he's the same yesterday and today, today, the same yesterday, today, and forever. All these gifts which I have spoken, why should they be lost? They're spiritual, they will never be done away with, even as long as the world shall stand, only according to the unbelief of the children of men. If they start misbehaving themselves and unbelieving, these things will become lost. Uh, and uh, then he tells us in the 24th verse here, And now I speak unto all the ends of the earth, that if the day cometh that the power of the gifts of God shall be done away among you, it shall be because of unbelief. And woe be unto the children of men if this be the case. And here's a marvelous statement here. For there shall be none that doeth good among you, no, not one. Because when the Lord, in the oldest and best account of the first vision we have, what the Lord said to Joseph right at the beginning of their conversation was, uh, Behold, the world at this time lieth in sin, and there is none that doeth good, no, not one. And mine anger is kindling against the inhabitants of the earth to visit them according to this ungodliness. Now we're going to see the results of that. Well, uh, well, many precious things then were taken away from the Old Testament as from the New. None of them are precious, for example. This is an, an example referring specifically, I say, to the, to the, we'll come back to this later, of course, to the Pearl of Great Price because it's such a clear-cut case. Now, the Book of Enoch. 
Uh, R.H. Charles, who is the principal editor of that, was for many years. He says nearly all writers of the New Testament were familiar with it. Here was a book that all the writers of the New Testament were familiar with. It was quoted, he discovered that there were no less than 128 quotations in the New Testament from the Book of Enoch. But the world didn't have any Book of Enoch. What had happened to it? It's quoted, we continue him, it's quoted as a genuine production of Enoch by Jude in the New Testament itself, quotes as a production of Enoch. He, uh, the Book of Jude quotes it as Enoch. And as scripture by St. Barnabas, one of the seven uh, apostolic fathers. And with the early fathers and apologists, it has all the weight of a canonical book. It was scripture as far as the early church is concerned. It was included in the Bible. It was part of it. It belonged there. There's not a trace of it there now. But when the men of the schools, not quoting now, became the leaders of the church, accommodating to the contemporary philosophy, there were many things in Enoch that they did not like. Charles himself doesn't like it. He, he puts it as tactfully as possible here. He says, but our book contained much of a questionable character, and from the fourth century of our, of our era, uh, of course it was the fourth century, of course, that was the time when the University of Alexandria won a complete victory over everything. That's the Athanasian Creed and so forth. And uh, it fell into discredit, this book of Enoch, and under the ban of such authorities as Hilary, Jerome, and Augustine, there's three of the four Latin doctors of the church. There's, there's their highest authority. But they're all, you see, in the fourth century and fifth. Fourth and fifth century. 520, go, go over the line there. Hilary, Jerome, and Augustine, it gradually became lost. Notice, under the ban, they banned it. They would not allow people to use the book of Enoch. Uh, they were the authorities. It was Hilary who made more decisions than anybody else. It was the Hilary winner who, who's tells us, if a thing isn't found in the scripture, you can be sure that it never happened. Unless a thing is mentioned in the Bible, it didn't happen. Now that's absolute dependence on one scripture, on, on uh, infallibility of the scriptures. See, the thing is that what Joseph Smith's given us here, he starts elaborating and bringing all these other things in and it offends people sorely. It's the worst offense he could possibly have made. Why do we need all this stuff, they say. Uh, I've heard members of the church say the same thing. But under their ban, it fell into discredit uh, and uh, became lost to the knowledge of Western Christendom till over a century ago, when, when it was that Sir James Bruce found, brought some copies back from his expedition to the sources of the Blue Nile, which he actually discovered, and then he brought, brought fragments of uh, the Book of Enoch back. Well, some big texts, three texts, beautiful ones. And nobody had known anything about it before. It was lost completely. The early church treasured it as just as a regular scripture and it's used all over. I say it's quoted in the Book of Mormon, too. This is an interesting thing, you see, because it, it wasn't known uh, at that time. But the objection to it there was almost as strong as the ancient ones when, when it came back in, the, in our own time. What was the reason for this? Now, this is the way R.H. Charles says, well, the law had claimed to be the highest and final word from God could tolerate no fresh message from God. Again, you can see why. We have to regard the Bible as complete, final, total, without one word of error, because as soon as we admit that there might be one ver verse wrong here and there or something incorrect, then we're in the soup, because we never know when a, when a verse is really telling us what we're supposed to learn. Is it right or is it wrong? This is a... Uh, this leads to all sorts of stuff. After all, you have 8,000 manuscripts, ancient manuscripts of the New Testament, and no two are alike. Now, which one are you going to follow? Uh, well... You start introducing things like that, and you're, you're in trouble. So these ma many precious things are to be restored. Now, the Latter-day Saints have never realized what they have here. Uh, neglect, I think, is an understatement, as far as that goes. Uh, when the uh, 
papyri, the, the Joseph Smith papyri, were found in 1967, or rather acquired by the church. They were known before that. Uh, a high authority, a, a relative of my wife, in fact, who was the editor of the Deseret News at that time, uh, said, why did Joseph Smith do that crazy thing? Why does he have to get us involved in all this Egyptian stuff? Well, why does that bother us? His idea of what was important to news was... Uh, uh, a new mall or a fashion salon open in the DCMI or something like that. Now that's news. But why are we bothered with all this ancient stuff? Uh, in the same way, uh, one of the general authorities was quite upset. He had just been made a general authority, incidentally, that we should pay any attention to the Book of Enoch at all. It has no point, no direction, not telling us anything. What's going on? And then there, one thing is that we've always treated it as uh, something that could be tossed off in three easy lessons. It's only 60 pages long, and uh, so when I first came to the BYU, it was, there was a very serious debate. It wasn't serious, they felt it was out of the question. There was nothing to debate about. Namely, you couldn't possibly find enough in the Pearl of Great Price to fill a whole quarter of instruction. We divided the year into quarters instead of semesters then. You couldn't fill a quarter with enough, so they divided it up with the uh, Doctrine and Covenants. And, that could be handled in a quarter, but you couldn't find enough in the Pearl of Great Price to keep a student going for a quarter. Oh, no. Not at all. Uh, well, I say we haven't taken seriously, and that is an understatement. Contempt is a better word. But we must affirm the gospel on two fronts, and this is where it's particularly valuable. Now, the removal of the precious things uh, by the teachers who didn't like them it not only plunged the students of the scriptures into endless theological argument, see, because of the precious things, they do stumble, and that's why, because, because these things are not supplied. Uh, a very interesting case of that is, is Gregory the Great in 600 AD. Now, Gregory's called the Great, and he was a very great man. He was a bishop of Rome at that time. And he uh, is also called Pater Superstitionum, the father of superstitions. Well, why? because he added all sorts of things that were not in there before. Uh, he was the one that made official the doctrine of, of uh, purgatory, the uh, ignis purgatorius, the, the purgatorial fires, because, as he noticed very plainly, oversimplification, people weren't completely good and completely bad. <laughs> the idea was, of course, very simply, this was the teaching of the Alexandrian school. It was for simplifying everything. When you die, you go straight to heaven or straight to hell, and that's that. You see, there's no place in between. Because people aren't 100% good and 100% bad. We're all in between. That's why we all need repentance, as far as that goes. It's not the good guys and the bad guys that we love with that syndrome we have today so very badly. You see, we're the good guys, they're the bad guys. And so it simplifies things, doesn't it? Uh, but uh, here's the in between is purgatory where we go to be tested and tried, and uh, now this was a teaching of the early church, but it wasn't purgatory there, you see, that it talked to, well, I mean, the fires of flame have purged out all the impurities and sin, as Hamlet's, as Hamlet's father says, Hamlet Sr., <laughs> that uh, when acquired in life, then you're ready to pass, pass on because you've been purged, that's why it was called purgatorium. But the, uh, the early Christians had the same thing, but it wasn't that at all, of course, they didn't call it the purgatory, uh, they called it the the uh, anapausis, the frig frigidarium. The same expression the, the Egyptians used, much the same. There's a very, very eloquent picture of it up in the museum now, in the Ramses exhibit. Uh, anapausis means pause a little, take a little rest. After this life, what you do, you go to a place where you rest and take a breather. 
and uh, no judgment or anything at that time. If you haven't been very good, you're going to worry at the time just the same. It, Alma makes it very clear when he talks about that to his son, as you know. And uh, the Roman term for it, the Latin term, was refrigerium, the refrigerator, the cooling place, a place where you cool off, rest and relax. Uh, it was a green room. We passed, just as you passed into this world through the Garden of Eden, we pass out of it through a garden into another world. Whenever you pass, to soften the culture shock, you, you go through this state, and there's some very interesting writings on that. Nobody pays any attention to, though. But uh, notice Gregory, way along in 600, not only introduced that, he introduced all sorts of doctrines. <laughs> they started paying more attention uh, to miracles. They started having masses for the dead. He's the first person that introduced that, you see. All these things, why? Because these were great gaps. They, people asked questions, and there was no answer they could get from the Bible. Why not? Because they'd removed all those parts. And it all comes back to us now in these later documents, see what he was trying to, to supplant. But, a, uh, well, the removal on two fronts. The theological arguments, I say, is the big thing. But that isn't the big thing now. That isn't the thing we value the Pearl of Great Price for. What is this big brouhaha, the scientific one that has come forth? It burst out with particular fury uh, in 1859 and after, as you know, because that's when The Origin of Species was, was published. And from then on to this very day, see, that is the big issue. That is this, the scientific one. Notice uh, why, again, because precious things have been taken out from the scriptures. And what is the, what is the merit of the Pearl of Great Price? It has restored those precious things to the scriptures that are going to answer about any question you can ask about that, about prehistory, prehistoric man, and what was doing millions of years, time schedules and all this sort of thing. Uh, you'd be surprised how well it handles them. So, if we had some of the precious things, it might be a different story, we'd say. We wouldn't have to have this argument, this uh, evolutionary conflict and the like. But we do have them in the Pearl of Great Price, and as a result, we do tell a different story, and as a result of that, we do get ourselves into trouble, in trouble with the world. A good example right now of what the Pearl of Great Price has given us is that movie called The Godmakers. Uh, no, it just shows how offensively out of line our teachings are with uh, conventional Christianity, which wants to play it safe. I'm going to use... Uh, I'm going to use... Uh, now. now, the purpose of religion, as I said, is to answer... Oh, we have some time, just five minutes. Is to answer the terrible question, so-called. They still bear that name. And the neatest definition I know of, well, the best, I think, answer to find is found here in the Clementine Recognitions. A very old work. It has the the uh, the Clementines, the Clemrec, we'll call that, the Clementine Recognitions. Uh, this is the first volume of the Patrologia. This is a battered one. 1854, it was published. Now, 1857, it came out. We have the Patrologia here, about a thousand volumes of the writings of the early fathers. The purpose of the Patrologia, which was uh, sponsored by the Vatican many years ago, is to publish every scrap of early Christian literature there was and publish it in chronological order. <laughs> what an advantage that would be. This would be the earliest writing of all, and the earliest writing in them is where we begin here. This first volume is, is the writing of so-called Clementines. Clement is the first, some say the third, no agreement about it, uh, Bishop of Rome. And uh, the Recognitions is a novel, the first Christian novel. It's very early, the, the uh, second, second century already. And it's called recognition because it deals with a very popular form in the ancient world. As the ancient world began to collapse, and it's so much like our own, you know, uh, the recognition became the most moving form of literature, and it became very common. It becomes the main theme in the 
in the uh, comedy of manners, in the Latin comedy of uh, Plautus and uh, Terence, taken over from Menander, taken over from a Greek popular writer. But this is, these were the popular plays, the popular TV series. They were soaps. But they always deal with recognition, namely families that were scattered, and they come together and recognize themselves, the glad moment of recognition. Always a moving, always a real tearjerker, see? The parted lovers meet in the end, and so they were called the recognitions. And, uh, oops. The Clementine recognition, uh, recognitions here. This one is about a family that was scattered and was brought together by the church. See, this was at the time of Christ. And, and how easy they were scattered. This is it, because life was so insecure. And uh, it was, uh, there was no security for anybody except the very rich, no security for them. For them either. They were in greater danger than anybody, as you read from Varro. Because there was no, there was no uh, defense against terrorism. And since that has become a theme in our days, I'm referring to the, the beginning of, of Varro's great work, De Re Rustica, on farming. Uh, a great landowner by the name of Varro, uh, again, in the days of the Republic, before the Empire came in, he wrote a work on rustic matters on farming. Well, it begins with a number of exceedingly rich men met in an office, the annex, the, the lobby of, a, of an office building in Rome, and there's a large map of Italy on the wall, and uh, they start pointing out their various holdings in it. One man says very uh, casually, this is my river here. Another says, well, this range of mountains, this is my range of mountains here. These men of such power, you know, and uh, worked by slaves, and uh, not by slaves anymore, but by sharecroppers that were cheaper than slaves because they wouldn't have to feed them. They have, just have to feed themselves. They were the old Roman soldiers. This goes back to the wars between the plebs and the and the patres, but they're waiting for the, the big man to come before the consultation to begin. He's the chairman of the board. He's the one they're waiting for. And they wait and wait and get impatient as they talk about their business affairs. And a servant comes in very much upset. He says, I'm sorry, uh, he, he's been murdered. He's just been killed. Uh, what happened? Well, he was going through the crowd and somebody wanted the Sicarii. It was very easy to carry a knife under, under a robe like that, you know, under shirt, whatever it was. And uh, they call them the Sicarii, the little knife people. The same words used in, in in Arabic, an Arabic word, as a matter of fact, Latin too. The Sicari uh, came out, he said, somebody slipped out of the crowd. He was walking along with his attendants, uh, fairly well protected. Somebody walked along and slipped a knife into him and said, oh my, I've made a mistake, I'm sorry, and ran off and disappeared into the crowd. He had, he had assassinated the wrong guy, but here the richest man in Rome couldn't defend himself. That's what happens when you have terrorists. So if you think we're living in new times, what did they do about it? They appointed a, a man called Augustus, who was very smart and very capable, and he, he helped things out. But, but the Roman history is a very interesting one because it parallels our own. Well, now we get to the terrible questions and the Clementine recognitions, which take us right to the Pearl of Great Price.